Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the John F. Kennedy Junior Forum. My name is Trey Grayson. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics, and we're glad to have everybody here at the Harvard Kennedy School for tonight's forum. Uh, we're going to talk about Iraq in the last 10 years. Uh, our moderator for this evening is Megan O'Sullivan, who is the Jean Kirkpatrick Professor of International Affairs here at the Kennedy School and was the Deputy National Security Advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan in the Bush administration. So please join me in welcoming Megan, and she'll introduce the rest of the panel. Thank you, Trey, and good evening to everyone. I'm just going to move this down a tiny bit. Good evening to everyone, and thank you all for joining us tonight. I'd also like to thank Professor Norton and the Institute of Iraqi Studies at Boston University, which is a co-sponsor of tonight's event. Every time we gather in the forum, it's a special occasion. But tonight, I feel, is a very special occasion, and not only because this is a topic that, as many of you know, is very close to my heart. It is because we have arranged a really um, extraordinary group of people, some of whom have come more than 6,000 miles to share their perspectives with you. And I would like to spend a moment and introduce them to you before setting the stage for our conversation. Can I just ask if this microphone works okay? It, it's echoing back here, but no, good, thank you. Um, to my left, we have Steve Hadley, who is most importantly a former boss of mine, but also uh, has uh, had many very important positions in the US government and a long uh, career, distinguished career in the law profession as well as in government. He most recently in government was the national security advisor for George, H., uh, George W. Bush um, in the second term of his administration. Um, before that, Steve was in private practice and served previously as an assistant secretary of defense under George H.W. Bush and under Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney at the time. Um, to his left is Dr. Hanan Al-Fatwali, who is a member of parliament. Dr. Hanan is joining us from Baghdad. She has, this is her third term in parliament and she is currently the chairwoman of the Parliamentary Development Committee. And this is a committee that really educates parliamentarians on how uh, parliament runs, on the procedures and the rules. And as many of you know, there are many uh, people in the Iraqi parliament who are new to this. And being a veteran, so to speak, uh, Dr. Al-Fatwa-Lawi has an important role. She's a medical doctor by training and has a special interest um, in those matters as they pertain to Iraq's development. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome you from Baghdad, thank you. And to her left is Dr. Abdul Latif Rashid, who is uh, currently a senior advisor to the Iraqi president. And he is involved in a whole manner of things, particularly the uh, development of Iraqi projects and uh, uh, issues pertaining to governance um, as the president of Iraq works on them. Before taking that job, he was the Minister for Water Resources for Iraq, and that was from 2003 until 2011, making him one of the longest serving ministers um, in Iraq. Before becoming a minister, he was very active in the, in the Iraqi opposition in leadership roles and was very active uh, in the Kurdish movement against Saddam. So we welcome him here today from Baghdad and from Erbil, or Suleymaniyah. And all the way on our left, we have Ambassador Samir Sumaydai, who is joining us um, also after a long and distinguished career serving Iraq in a variety of ways. 
He is currently a consultant and I like to say a poet, something uh, very important to him. But before that, until recently, he was Iraq's ambassador to the United States, a position that he began in 2006. Previous to that, he served Iraq at the United Nations as their ambassador there. And before that, he was in Iraq. He was the Minister of Interior for some time. And going back even further, he was part of the Governing Council, which was the first governing body, the partner to the coalition during uh, the coalition provisional authority period. Um, like others on stage, he has been very active. He was very active in the opposition against Saddam for many decades before actually returning to Iraq. So thank you for letting me introduce our guest at a little bit greater length. We don't have bios out for you tonight, so I wanted to take that opportunity. But now let's um, get to the conversation. The impetus for this panel is really 10 years um, after the removal of Saddam, which we mark this April. And of course, 10 years is somewhat arbitrary, but it seems as good a time to any to ask a lot of the probing questions that many Americans, many Iraqis, and many people around the world really still have about the last decade. You know, what has been achieved? Was it worth it? And where is Iraq going today? So what I'd like to do is actually I'd like to start with today. Again, we have people who've come a great distance to share a perspective that I think you often don't get to hear directly. So I'd like to ask our guests, um, I'll start with Dr. Hanan, I'd like to ask a little bit about just where is Iraq today? We don't hear that much about Iraq in the press unless it is still um, a, a security problem or a, a political gridlock problem. But Dr. Hanan, and then I'll ask our other two Iraqi guests, could you say a word or two about where Iraq is today? How are Iraqis feeling about the environment? Thank you, Megan. Uh, of course, 10 years, it's not a short period. It's a long time for all communities. But if you look at our history, if you look at uh, what the dictatorship did with Iraq, it's not a long time to start from a dictatorship system, dictatorate system to a democracy. Of course, we face day after day a lot of challenges. We achieved a lot of good things, but still we are fighting to achieve more and to change and to reform the negative things that are present today. Of course, after the change, we have our constitution that brought by Iraqi, uh, by themselves. Of course, we have a freedom to express ourselves right now. Of course, we have me media, of course, we have uh, elected government, we have election every four years. Uh, our government elected, not appointed, uh, as previously, the election are true and fair and uh, peaceful transference of power. All these things are positive and people uh, look at it in a positive way. Uh, even the standard of living, we are much better than before. For example, I could uh, tell you that I, I was a medical doctor when the regime fell. Uh, a specialist in dermatology, my salary at that time was $2 per month. And at that time, one kilo of meat was probably $8. So a salary for one month for a medical doctor was $2. Standard of living right now. Now a, a junior doctor uh, take at least to, takes uh, $1,000 per month. So standard of living change. Many, uh, we achieved many, many, many positive things. But still, we are facing a lot of negative things. One of the major challenges we are facing is terrorism. Of course, it's not uh, our fault. A lot of mistakes done early after uh, the change, leaving the border open, uh, re resolving the 
whole army and all these things uh, open the door for ex extremists to enter and giving the space for Al-Qaeda to work and to have a good media to, to, to blow and to start to uh, all these uh, things. Of course, terrorism is the major uh, challenge we are facing right now. Uh, add to it corruption. We have corruption. And uh, in addition to that, we have sectarian tension right now. Of course, during 2006, it was the wars. But uh, we uh, could, with the help of the government, with the cooperation of the people, we uh, could overcome it and uh, pass to a, a good situation. But right now, of course, we're still facing a lot of challenges. Uh, we have to reform our parliamentary system. As you know, parliamentary system should be strong in order to uh, supervise or oversight the government. Uh, still, uh, the results of the election, of course, affect our situation. Close results of all uh, blocks uh, force them to unite together in order to build a government. And of course, if all people participated in one government, there will be no opposition. And this is maybe the, uh, one of the major reasons for uh, lack of services. People are still seeking for services. But believe me, we have a lot of good things, sharing of power. We have decentralized system. We have local government in all provinces in addition to the region. Uh, dividing the budget according to the number of population. Uh, no discrimination right now. This is Sunni or this is Shia, as previously the old regime. Uh, this is the. This was his policy, uh, oppressing someone and uh, giving privileges to other. Now scholarship according to the uh, to the number of population in each provinces. Uh, job opportunity the same in addition to budget distribution between. Uh, of course, we need more reforms in order to move from centralized, very strong centralized system to real decentralized. Still, we have a lot of laws from the old regime. All these need to be revised and reforms in order to have a real democratic environment that all Iraqi could live and could be proud of. Thank you. Seems a perfect segue to Dr. Latif. Well, uh, thank you very much. Allow me to say I'm glad to be here. And it's good to see all of you. Uh, to answer the question, I would like to say that the Iraqi people as a whole, and certainly the Kurdish people, appreciate what multinational forces did for Iraq. We are grateful. We did a tremendous job. And Iraq eventually will go through a path of democracy. It will establish democracy in the Middle East. It will establish freedom in Iraq. And we appreciate all the sacrifice which you did for our country, for our people. And really, I'm not the uh, only voice here. That's the feeling of majority of Iraqis. To answer your question, yes. I think if you look at the Iraqi Kurdistan, then I'll come to uh, Iraq. Uh, the situation has changed tremendously. Iraqi Kurdistan is a prosperous area. The development has taken place. Standard of living has risen. There is freedom. There is security, total security. Electricity has risen and energy has risen from zero to 32 hours per day. 
Iraqi Kurdish people live in a safe haven. They are enjoying international connections. They have two, three airports built during this period. Water supply, education, public health have improved a lot. The relationship between the Kurdish people and the rest of Iraq is normal. Yes, occasionally we hear about certain difficulties. And I think those difficulties can be overcome in future because until now, the entire Kurdish population, political parties, believe in a united, federal, democratic Iraq. Democracy is not an easy way. It's not a straight line. It's a zigzag line. We do have certain problems in certain areas. But I think with the help of uh, multinational forces, which liberated us from one of the most brutal dictatorships in Iraq, I think we will find our way forward. The difficulties which mentioned and reported in many medias between the KRG and certain government, I would really uh, draw a line under three items, which hopefully can be solved. One is oil and gas law. Chief, I just want to make sure that everyone here knows that the KRG is the Kurdistan regional government mm -hmm. um, in northern Iraq. That's right. I'm so, sorry. I should have no, explained okay. that. Yes. The oil and gas law. I think by passing oil and gas law in Iraqi parliament, with the consultation between the two sides, we can solve that problem. And I'm glad to report to you, recently there has been contacts between the both sides. KRG, Kurdistan regional government, has sent delegations to central government in Baghdad, and Baghdad has sent delegations to the region to solve this problem. The second problem is we do call certain areas disputed area. These are the area which during Saddam Arabization took place. And the population, original population were deported from that, those areas. We call it disputed areas. According to constitutions, the normalization of these areas should take place. And I think we are putting forward steps to be taken. This is not the, in the hand of one individual. It's not, it cannot be implemented by order of prime minister or a minister or the president of Kurdistan Regional Force. It's a process. The second uh, problem is really implementations of the constitution. Implement our, unfortunately, our constitutions, I know a lot of countries, uh, a lot of countries and states work without constitutions. But in Iraq, we have a constitution. And everybody is defending that constitution. The weakness in our constitutions, it has not been modified or <coughs> clarified by parliamentary laws. And parliamentary laws has been slow for a number of reasons. One reason, which is very uh, obvious, in Iraq we still believe the policy of consensus between all political groups, political parties. Iraq is a multinational, multi-religious, multi-sectarian society. Without consensus, I don't think we can solve all our problems. The second problem which we have had, unfortunately, is still we do suffer from attacks from terrorism. 
terrorism has been widely active in Iraq. Still is going on. The third problem is we do in Iraq badly need changing the old centralized laws to more effective laws which we can run a decentralized society. Decentralization is the demand of entire Iraqi populations. These are the steps which we hope to take place, and I'm sure, I'm sure our leaders and the next parliament, which we hope to have the next parliament in a, about a year's time, will deal with these problems, and I think we can all look <coughs> forward to go forward. Thank you, Dr. Lateef. Ambassador Sumeda? Um, thank you, Megan, for this great opportunity to, to be here and um, to talk about Iraq. Um, I used to be known as the optimistic one in the days of the governing council. I'm afraid I'll have to take the opposite role uh, in this evening session. Listening to my two compatriots, everything is great and we are on course to recovery and if we are only patient, uh, everything will be fine. Um, I wish, if it, I wish it was so. Uh, the reality is something else. Um, I don't dispute that the removal of Saddam Hussein was a, a life-saving and, and life-changing event for which we are grateful for the Americans and, and, and the supporting allies. Um, and I always said that whilst uh, during Saddam, the horizon was closed, there was no possibility of uh, improvement for the country, at least after the removal of Saddam, we have an open horizon, we have the possibility of advancing. But after 10 years, we, found, we find ourselves in, in, a, in, a, in a stagnant, maribund situation. And you can say, okay, you can be patient, things will improve. Um, if we are moving in the right direction, yes, the Iraqi people are patient. They have been patient. They have been suffering terribly. And they have been really an exemplary in terms of their resilience and in terms of their forbearance. But things don't look like we are going in the right direction. The reason, to put it very simply, is uh, a set of structural problems that we have. And we don't have the mechanism of working our way out of them because they are built into the system. Sectarian politics is one of them. Yes, uh, Saddam was definitely a sectarian tyrant. To say now there is no sectarianism is something not accurate. The reality is there is sectarianism, as well as sectarian politics. Now, the Americans came in and put in uh, a system to some extent based on sectarian politics. They, the, 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 these are the outlines of the system we have. We have a constitution that everybody agrees has to be changed, needs to be changed, but everybody says it's impossible to change. You've got to get everybody to agree to any change, and that is politically impossible. Now, the result is 
and, and, and we have a security apparatus which is overpopulated. We have more than a million people in the security services. Uh, but the quality of the service really is very inferior. And we have, we have every day people, people going uh, uh, victim uh, of acts of terror and intimidation. So if our system was such that by, by collective activity, we are moving forward, even if slowly, then I would say, yes, we'll get there. I don't see it uh, going that way. Uh, in fact, I think we have a real crisis. And to get out of the crisis, I don't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm sorry to be uh, negative, but I have lived in dreams and hope for so long and experienced the bitterness of, of disappointment that I have to be honest about the assessment. Um, just one additional thought. I set for myself, and I encourage you also to set the same indicator uh, for success. How many Iraqis living abroad want to go back? Initially, after the Americans went in, many, many Iraqis living a comfortable life in the United States or Europe or elsewhere chose to go back out of excitement, out of enthusiasm, out of patriotism. But many of them, most of them, have left again. The net flow into Iraq or out of Iraq is more accurate and more honest indicator of the prospects of the country than any political slogan and any political statement. Thank right. you. Thank you. And thank all three of you for those comments. Let's stay on this theme about politics for a moment um, before I come to Steve to talk about an American perspective. It seems that you, you all agree that there are problems. I didn't hear anyone say that there's, there are no problems. Um, but you disagree on Iraq's ability to resolve them and the time frame and the trajectory. And we've talked in other settings about uh, the challenges of politics in Iraq, about sectarianism in politics. And I'm wondering if either of the three of you, any of the three of you, would like to comment on how to get over that, um, how you can see Iraq emerging from a period of politics where parties are organized around sectarian identity or ethnic identity to a period where politics are organized around ideas or some, something else. Um, and that would seem to open the door to a, a different kind of future for Iraq. And it's actually something we saw in 2009 and 2010. So is this something that the Iraqi people will push? Is this something that Iraqi politicians can help um, address? What, what, what is the way, way forward here? Who would like to? Um, Megan, I think really one, one point is quite important. Everybody underestimated the nature of the regime and the effect of the regime having on Iraqi population. For, for 30 years. For, say, 40 years. 40 years, yeah. 40 years. It's a long period of time. Dictatorship, sanctions, isolations, it affected the fiber of Iraqi society. 
And I am one to admit that we didn't realize it. We thought if you remove Saddam Hussein, everything will be rosy. And that expectation but has been? That, that, that has been disappointment. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Second thing which really, and I think this is quite important, the interference by our neighboring countries. They didn't allow us, I don't know whether it was fear of freedom, fear of democracy, policy. They didn't allow us to breathe and take our democratic ambition to be achieved quickly. Secondly, the nature of the system which we had in Iraq, a very tight, centralized system without proper institutions. And we had to rebuild all of that in a sh short period of time. And by changing the law of engagement by the multinational forces from liberation to occupation delayed that process as well. So these are the factors which have affected. And I'm afraid we were not planning for them to be implemented. But now we have all agreed that we have to implement our constitution. And according to constitutions, we should solve our, pro our problems. Thank you. Dr. Hanan? Uh, I want to add something uh, to Mr. Sumaidai. No one said that the situation is perfect. Of course, all of us admit that we, we are fa facing a serious and real trouble. But we have to be optimistic and work hard in order to overcome all these troubles. Otherwise, uh, there is no other option uh, other than failure. And failure is not good for Iraq. Failure is not good for the sacrification by, by American with the blood and money. Failure is not good for the whole region. Iraq is a rich country, rich in human resources, rich in oil, rich in natural resources, rich in everything. Add to it, a we have a civilization. So we don't have another option. We have to work hard. We have to overcome all this trouble. Uh, believe me, a lot of Iraqis, thousands and thousands of Iraqis, return back to their home. Yes, we have still we have a large number of Iraqis somewhere, but many of them because they have job and they have their kids in schools and all these things. We need to, to work. You said, what's the solution? There is no magic solution for Iraq. There is no magic stick to change the whole situation between day and night. We have to work hardly. For example, about human rights. Still we have serious trouble with the human rights standards in all institutions, in all uh, ministries, but how could that will be reformed by educating our children in primary school, in nursery school, in, in universities, and uh, by training police forces, by training employees. By, uh, we, we could improve it, not by wishing and not by uh, blaming ourselves. What, what happened has is, is happened. No, no one could go back and, and change the, the time. For example, about the security situation, we have to build our police forces, we have to build our army, we have to uh, support them with weapons, with, with uh, training courses, with or we need the uh, cooperation of the people themselves. Unless they are part of the process, it's not easy to change the security situation because all the institution built after uh, the change. So there is no real experience in such a situation. The, one of the most important things that could shorten the time for us, all of us believe that we will improve, we will get healthy later on, but we will take a time. Uh, the politician, if they sit together and negotiate and reach a deal and reach an agreement about the main issue, not all issues, it's impossible to get an agreement about everything, but we could get, uh, could get agreement about the vital things that affecting the people 
affecting the people's life, we need to sit together and negotiate. This will shorten the time. Instead of 10 years more, we could improve in two years or three years. Believe me, I'm still optimistic that we will overcome all this trouble and we will uh, rise again. Thank you. Thank you. Um, um, I, I envy Dr. Hanan for her, her optimism. Uh, and I wish I could share it. Uh, the reality is uh, different. Um, she said that the alternative to hard work and, and just moving forward is failure. Some people will say that is exactly what we have, failure. Uh, now, the prospect, in my opinion, we will not be moving forward. And possibly there is a risk of moving backwards unless we change the fundamentals of our way of doing things. And I will just use one illustration for this. After the fall of Saddam Hussein, and specifically the Islamist uh, Shia parties, came with a mindset that now it is the turn of the Shia to govern. And that is what they will do, and they will never relinquish that right. Now, I, as a, an Iraqi, have absolutely no problem with any Shia uh, individual becoming prime minister, becoming president, becoming any post, taking their full, absolute full role. And, and because they are actually numerically uh, greater, they will probably automatically become, uh, become the de facto majority in, in government. But to come with this kind of mindset immediately sets the, the, the political stage for conflict. I think unless we deal with that attitude and we deal with the flaws in the structure and the flaws in the constitution, honestly, and, and uh, clearly, the Shia leaders have to come to realize that they are in a cul-de-sac. This road is not going to lead anywhere. And pull back and sit down with others, with, the, with all others, and say, look, we need to change direction. An honest reappraisal. And I think they will find a lot of very willing and supportive partners. Iraqis want to move forward. They are tired. They have had enough pain. They want to move forward. They want to help each other to move forward. But as long as we have these, these attitudes, Iraq will not move forward. Thank you. I'd like to just take a moment, Steve, and turn to you and ask uh, for an American perspective. How do you look at the last 10 years? This is something that you worked on, been a part of, have thought a great deal about. How do you look back on these last 10 years? Well, let me react to this. One, I just want to thank you all for coming because we need to hear Iraqis talking about Iraq, not so much Americans talking about Iraq, and we're grateful that you came. Um, secondly, I've not been around for the last five years, so I'm out of touch in terms of what's going on on the ground. There are two or three things that I would react to that I've heard here. One is the point you made. Uh, we all underestimated what 30 or 40 years under Saddam had done to Iraqi society. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
we, you know, it, it was too simple, and we all thought it was going to be more simple than it was, and we were all mistaken uh, about that. Second of all, I, I thought it was interesting what, when I was doing this every day, um, I didn't hear, for example, and you did not say it explicitly, Ambassador, but we've had conversations about this in the past, that the federal character of Iraq was always somewhat controversial. And to hear people say that we need to have a more decentralized system, that what was established was too centralized, we need to move in a more decentralized direction, and to have representatives of all three communities saying that, that's not how I remember it five years ago. And secondly, um, many times you have these situations where one part of the society will cling to the Constitution as drafted like a life raft, and others, you know, feel it is an enormous burden. I hear all three of you saying the institutions, the Constitutions need to be changed. They need to be revised. Now, the saying is always a lot easier than the doing. But to have that degree of consensus seems to me something we did not have some time ago. Um, thirdly, I, I think we should not underestimate how difficult what Iraq is trying to do, to have many different communities working together in a common democratic framework where the history of Iraq and the history in the region has generally been one uh, sectarian group oppresses another in one place, and it's the reverse in the next. And this is enormously difficult to do. It is, it is changing history. It's changing history in Iraq. It's changing history in a region, in a region, and at a time when the region is in dynamic change. Which brings me to my last point, which is you're doing something that is extremely difficult, that has not been done in the history of Iraq, or really in the region, and you're doing it at a time when Iraq is under enormous pressure. And I won't get into details, you know it better than I, but there is clearly pressure coming from Iran in the east. There are questions and suspicions, and you were very reassuring, I think, on this, but there's suspicions about what the relationship is between Turkey and the KRG and what that means for the territorial integrity of Iraq that has people concerned. And of course, there's concern what is happening in Syria next door, where you, you have a sectarian violence that risks destabilizing Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, maybe Turkey as well, and spreading, and put is, is putting enormous strain on the Iraqi political system. And of course, it has opened the door again for Al-Qaeda, which is now active in Syria, and we have now seen it is conjoined with the Al-Qaeda elements in Iraq. And one of the things we all forget, that um, the vacuum that we are, some, are, are responsible for uh, after the fall of Saddam was an opportunity for Al-Qaeda to come into Iraq, and, and Al-Qaeda made that the central front in the war on terror. That's where they're going to defeat America um, and defeat all in Iraq who wanted a democratic future. Well, Al-Qaeda now, because of Syria, is back. So, you know, I would, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful because I've seen the Iraqi people before, not at the 11th hour, usually at the 13th hour, figure these problems out. 
I'm hopeful because I think on some basic principles, I hear some common assumptions about directions that I did not hear five years ago. Um, and I'm hopeful because I believe in the democratic experiment in Iraq, but I think we have to recognize how difficult what they're doing is and how particularly difficult it is to do it now with so much pressure on Iraq coming from all the changes in the region. It's very difficult. And lastly, I would say um, we all, especially those of, of us, uh, those nations who were involved in Iraq, need to be helping. And the question I many times have for my government is I don't think we're helping enough. Megan, is, uh, I would like to make a comment and a, as an example. Uh, my colleague Samir mentioned that number of professional people, people with qualifications, came to back to Iraq, but they wouldn't stay. They all left. I agree with him. This is the crux of the matter. Because of the laws and regulations which have been left in Iraq, we could not, we could not employ them. A professor comes back to Iraq, a professor, because he hasn't served in Iraq and he hasn't been employed by Iraqi government, he will be considered as a new graduate. That's an Iraqi law. It wasn't like this in the past. But Saddam Hussein, to forbid people to come back or to leave Iraq, he put forward this law. Now, it's not the hand of anybody to employ somebody as a professor giving him his exact title because he hasn't served in Iraq. That's why I do emphasize changing the rules and regulations and deregulating the centralized and bad laws of Saddam Hussein is extremely important. And even that can help us in fighting the corruption. Thank you. Time always goes very quickly when we're up here. So in about five minutes, I'd like to take some questions from the audience, but I'd like to ask one question to allow our Iraqi guests to um, comment on or comment on anything that's been said thus far. And that's really a general questions about the lessons of the last decade. When you look back, we've been kind of looking at today and thinking about the future, but when you look back at the last decade, is there a lesson that you think is most important for um, other countries maybe to know. Certainly the Arab world is experiencing a lot of political change and uh, many countries with different impetuses, but they're moving through a, a political transition period as well. Are there things that you think Iraq experienced that would be important for them to be aware of? Or any you know, big lesson that you think stands out from the last decade? Samir, shall I start with you and then yes, go to Dr. Uh, Hanan? If there is, if there is one or two lessons that stand out uh, in my mind, they're the following. I've come to realize that when a country is in transition, a certain critical juncture of that transition, what appears to be a minor decision could have huge implications 10 years hence. Mm -hmm. It's like a tipping point situation. The, that's why the ramifications of decisions made when you and I worked in 2003 in Baghdad and we had our disagreements and arguments, which I I'm sure- I don't remember you as an optimist. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> that, that, that um, unfortunately has been cured. And some, somebody said a uh, pessimist is only an informed optimist. Uh, but, uh, or a better informed optimist. Anyway, my, th that's the first lesson. That uh, people should not take lightly decisions or the implications of decisions in a time of critical change. The next question, uh, the next issue, is the impact of corruption on the, on, on the whole development of the country. And I must emphasize that corruption grew and became endemic during the years of the sanctions. It was actually the sanctions that did more damage to Iraq than probably any other factor, uh, including wars, although wars were extremely damaging. I found as a minister of interior in 2004 that senior police officers who had resigned or retired before the sanctions were generally still clean. And those who worked through the sanctions were steeped in corruption. So I started retiring senior officers and bringing from, back from retirement older officers. Now, this is a lesson, but in reality, when you have uh, uh, corruption become so endemic, it becomes a culture, it's extremely difficult to shake off. And now we are, we are on, the, on the horns of these two huge problems. One is corruption, and one is, is, is terrorism. And the two are interrelated. Thank you. Dr. Hanan? Uh, of course, a lot of lessons learned yes, during this long time, such as suffering and challenges and hurdles in front of us. But one of the main important points, I think, for other Arabic countries or any country who, will, who who's going to, be, uh, to face a change, uh, don't rush, don't be in a hurry to write a constitution in a very short period of time. Study your situation, study your community, learn from other experience. It's not an achievement to have a constitution in very short time with a lot of uh, vague things or a lot of things that in, in the future uh, being a hurdle in front of real democracy in Iraq, being a hurdle in front of uh, amending a law. So be patient when you, you are writing your constitution. The second thing, don't build the government on a sectarian basis. And this is one of the mistakes done in Iraq immediately after uh, Saddam left the Council of uh, Governors or Council of Government based on a sectarian. And this will continue afterward and afterward and impossible now to change. It's very difficult to change because it's like a, it became like a, a right for someone. It's not easy to change. And also, don't, uh, don't move in a sharp way. No sharp movement, no sharp turn. It's not right to move from a dictatorship, a central, very strong centralized system, immediately to a federal or almost a confederal system. This is also not right. You have to educate people how to move. You have to amend the law. You have to build an environment for a federal system in order to make it work, in order to make it good for the people, for the benefit of the people. So no sharp movement, no sharp turn. We need to be patient and decide what's the best 
for, for themselves. Uh, copy and paste for other experiences, it's not, not good. And each community has its own uh, standards, own beliefs, own uh, ethics, own uh, everything is different from one country to another, even in the, in the Arabic countries, even in, uh, within neighboring country, things are different from one to other, another. So they have to be patient in, in everything in order not to uh, pay a lot as we, as we are. Dr. Latif, and then well, I'll turn I, to take questions. Okay, uh, very briefly. I think the, each society is different from another. I think two characteristics through my experience in Iraq, uh, are two characters of Iraqis are clear. Resilience, with all this suffering which we have had, Iraqi society is resilient and standing on its feet. Uh, it's unbelievable. At one time, during one day, you used to suffer from 30, 40 car bombs. Large number of martyrs being killed. Yet the society, after hours, used to go back. Second, defiance. Iraqi society does not accept what has been advised to him at large. They, they are really uh, a society of defiance on individual basis and on large groups. That's why we have this problem with political parties. Each political party thinks he should be ruling the country. He should be, or they should be uh, in charge. They are, and they are in defiance with the rest of the groups, which creates mistrust among number of political parties. The second point, which is quite important, elections doesn't mean democracy has been implemented. I think politicians in any country should listen to the people. Unfortunately, most of our politicians in Iraq still are not aware of what the public at large are advising them. That's true, great, thank you. What I'd like to do is um, take some questions from the audience. It's a uh, it's a part of what we do here in the forum, and we have three rules that will be familiar to everyone who's been here before. Please, um, first, identify yourself. Second, please ask a question uh, which is brief. And thirdly, please make sure your question ends with a question mark. I'm going to begin here and go counterclockwise. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Sita Gofard. I'm a sophomore at the college, and it is really wonderful to hear uh, from all of you um, and take away the lessons that we've learned in, from Iraq in the past 10 years. Um, and so because this forum was sort of about the, the lessons we've learned in the past 10 years, I wanted to look forward and ask you what your uh, vision is for Iraq in the next 10 years. Um, where do you think Iraq can be in the next 10 years? What is your sort of hope or your ambition for the nation? And what priorities do we need to set in order to get there? Great, thank you. We have uh, quite a few people asking questions, so I'll just try to get everyone to be relatively brief in their responses, but would anyone here like to address that question? What are your aspirations? How do you see, what will Iraq look like in 10 years? Well, we, what we'd like in Iraq is Iraq to be prosperous, Iraq to be safe for every Iraqis, Iraq to establish decentralization, Iraq to implement its constitutions, Iraq federal, democratic, freedom for everybody, and everybody should live in harmony. That's what we really hope to achieve. And I think the prosperity of Iraq 
is foreseen. The oil production is increasing. The agriculture has improved. The services, and uh, once we establish a proper security, the infrastructures of Iraq can be implemented. In certain places of Iraq, already we have started. In the Kurdistan regional government or Kurdistan region, the infrastructures has improved tremendously. The oil production, we are hoping in five years' time to reach eight or nine million barrels a day. And another important thing is we won't want to live in harmony with our neighboring countries. Okay, thank you. Anyone else like to make a? Uh, just one point. Of course, during uh, the last 10 years, a lot of things improved. If you compare Iraqi budget immediately after uh, the change and you look at it now, 10 billion, uh, of course, it's a, a long way. Uh, the amount of oil produced and exported also, uh, look, and look at some, something uh, that's simple. For example, women's situation. Previously, we don't have women at all in politics. Now we have l uh, more than 25% in, in parliament and local government. We don't have previously women judges. We don't have uh, women in media. We don't have women in civil society. We don't have women in uh, police forces. Of course, a lot of achievement. All of this will be improved and will be better, of course, in the, uh, the coming 10 years. Uh, and uh, in, under one condition, if our neighboring country uh, leave Iraq by itself to decide for himself, not to interfere with our decision, not to interfere with us, of course, a lot of things will be achieved in the, the coming 10 years. Thank you. Um, okay, I'll, uh, shall I turn to you first on the next on, question? I will, no, no, okay. I will, I will uh, take Good. another opportunity. Okay, yes, up in the balcony. My name is Emmanuel. I'm a Master of Public Policy student here um, from France. And I had a question to uh, Stephen um, Hadley about the lessons of the Iraq experience for the US foreign policy establishment. Um, in particular, the fact that uh, one of the main reasons given to go to war in Iraq was the weapons of mass destruction, and that in practice um, there weren't as many as expected. And I wanted to know if he could talk about the lessons that he thinks the U.S. Security, national security and foreign policy establishment sh should draw from this, in particular when it comes to Iran, since the, one of the main reasons to go to war with Iran would be the same, weapons of mass destruction. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> it's very interesting. The, um, and one of the things I've sort of come to in the last year or so Everybody talks about the failure to find the WMD was an intelligence failure, and I suppose it was. Um, everybody, we know they had been there in 90 and 91. We know that Saddam had used chemical weapons against his own people and against the Iranians. Um, and we know that he was obligated to destroy them in a way that the world could verify it, and he did not. And and the entire, really, intelligence established the United States and other countries thought he still had them. And we were all wrong, um, not just intelligence community and not just other countries, but also Republicans and Democrats. We were all wrong. And the question is why. And one is, I, I've now been saying to people, I think part of it, it was a failure of imagination for all the discussion we had about weapons of mass destruction. Nobody that I recall ever came in to the President of the United States and said, Mr. President, 
I've got an idea for you. What do you, what do you think if maybe Saddam Hussein quietly, without even telling his own people, got rid of those, w, those weapons of mass destruction as the international community required, but he didn't want to let anybody know because he did not want to single to Iran, a country with whom he had waged an eight-year war. And, you know, it never occurred to me. No intelligence analyst ever came in and came to the President of the United States, and yet from the debriefs of Saddam Hussein, that may be exactly what happened. So one of the things I think it tells all of you who aspire to go into government service and are going to be in these jobs is always asking your questions about the counterfactuals and the alternatives and doing the role playing, you know, getting people acting out what the other side might do as a way of getting outside your own preconceptions and getting your imagination going to be able to see really what the reality is that is beyond what your intelligence services can give you. It's, I can't do much better than that. We were just, you know, everybody says Bush lied. You know, everybody thought he had these things. Nobody lied. Everybody was wrong. And you got to ask yourselves, what's the matter with the system when it turns out everybody's wrong? And I think it has more to do with imagination. Can I just add something for sure. as far as Iraq is concerned? Okay, sure. I think for us, it was very important to ask international community to help Iraqis. Because Saddam Hussein waged a war against Kurdish people, oppressed both Shi'i and Sunni in Iraq. He was danger to national security of Iraq, regional security of the region, and international security. From our point of view, it wasn't important. And I'm sure if he was remained in power, he would have carried out the weapons of mass destruction. Maybe not nuclear, but poison gas, all forbidden in gases and weapons of mass destruction which were forbidden by the international community. Thank you. Yes, if I could go up to our left. Hi, my name my name's Will and I'm a freshman at the college and a member of the JFK Junior Forum Committee. And I just wanted to ask a question that we actually got from Twitter tonight, which is, could you all please comment on the reasons behind the continued strained Iraqi-Saudi relations, and how would you think that the relations will evolve in the future? Thank you. Thank you. And I promised I'd go to Samir, and as a diplomat, it seems well <laughs> suited to you. I always get the difficult ones. <laughs> there are no um, easy ones. Uh, actually, the, uh, the problem with, the, with our Saudi brothers uh, goes back. Uh, they, I think it's not uh, a secret that they were, th they were against the intervention to start with. And when the intervention took place and Saddam was removed in, in, a, in a very forceful way, they and a number of other Arab countries were in denial for a while. When we were in the governing council, you will remember uh, Megan, the first high-level delegations we received was not from any Arab country, it was from Iran. Iran took the initiative, although Iran was perceived to be uh, antagonistic to the United States, certainly to the United States military sitting on its 
eastern, uh, western flank. They were the first to take the initiative and come and tell us that they were happy with the change, that they are supportive, and, and, and they stood with us. None of our Arab brothers took that initiative. And I think that was a missed opportunity. Unfortunately, later, when the, a certain sectarian flavor started to flow into Iraqi politics, which played into the phobias of, uh, of uh, Saudi Arabia towards Shia. We don't, in Iraq, we don't have phobias. The communities, I've always said, uh, the, the terrorist, terrorist acts against the Shia and against the Sunnis were not perpetrated by the committees. It was not a civil war. It was a war against civilians by the extremists of both communities. We have a lot of intermarriage. We, the two communities are not antagonistic, nor are the Arabs ag antagonistic against the Kurds. And I think Kak uh, Latif will, uh, will, uh, will, will confirm this. Our Arab neighbors have a different social composition in their countries. And they don't have the same attitudes as Iraqis. So to answer the question, responsibility lies on both sides. The, although Iraq, and I, I know uh, Hoshar Zibari, our foreign minister, spent a lot of effort. And the Americans spent a lot of effort on our behalf to persuade not only Saudi Arabia, but other Arab nations. They remain reluctant. Maybe we should have made more effort. Maybe we should have uh, uh, taken care more to reduce the sectarian tone of our politics. But the main responsibility, I think, is on our Arab neighbors for not welcoming the new Iraq and for not showing a positive attitude to the new Iraq. Great, thank you. Let me take a question here. I'm Roger Whalen uh, from Santa Barbara, California. Sorry, uh, if you could repeat that. Uh, your mic was off, I think. Say it, say it again? Yes. There we go. I'll just get closer. I'm Roger Whalen from Santa Barbara, California, and I'm a rather frequent visitor here. And uh, two weeks ago, I was in Afghanistan, and they're a little concerned about how the status of residual force will uh, turn out, that negotiation. Is there anything they can learn from the three of you about how the lack of, of status of force agreement affected you? Is your life better or worse? Great, interesting question. Um, it, the question is about the status of forces agreement that the U.S. and Iraq tried to negotiate to keep a residual American force in Iraq mm -hmm. and whether the Afghans are thinking about negotiating a similar deal right now. Looking back on the Iraqi experience, um, is there anything that is useful to learn um, that others, like the Afghans, might be wise to know? Of course, they have to end with an agreement, like in Iraq, but uh, it depends on both countries rather than depend on our choice. Uh, as I mentioned before, most of us are happy with the change. Most of us are grateful for those who help us for the change. But all of us are unhappy with, well, with what happened later on. 
uh, invasion is not a good choice for any country or presence of a military group from another country, it's not a good choice. So uh, as much as uh, they could make the sh time short, but of course, as I mentioned, no sharp turn, no sharp movement, because withdrawal of forces immediately may, be, uh, may will create more troubles in a situation like in Afghanistan. I'm not sure the situation is very close to us, so I, my answer, I don't know whether here or not, Dr. Lavey could add. Dr. Latif, would you like to? Well, I, I was in the cabinet when SOFA agreement between Iraq and the United States took place. It took a long time. It took a long time, a number of drafts. We kept changing it, and this, Emma I, was there as well at that I could time. Just, uh, this was the one that was signed, and then later there was one that was not renewed. So you know, the, the one in the 2011. Is, I think the question is, uh, there was the SOFA agreement in 2008 that extended till December yeah. 31, 2011. Um, Afghanistan is also coming to a 2014 transition That's date. That's right. Um, Afghans are asking whether they should have a SOFA that extends the foreign force presence after 2014. Iraq did not have a SOFA that extended the foreign force presence yeah. after December 1, 31, 2011. Um, what do you, do you draw from that as a consequence and what advice would you give to our Afghan friends? I well, think that's a complicated question. Really, it's very difficult. It depends on the two countries. Uh, but just for you, uh, what do you think about uh, how, how did things go in Iraq after we didn't have that uh, well, 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 we decided to take responsibility. We employed a lot of security forces, army, uh, police force, uh, security forces, and we decided to train them, and training took place, and I think there were some arrangements uh, by buying uh, uh, military equipments from United States and at the same time committing our forces to be trained by United States and in different places. So uh, this is what we did. But for, uh, I don't know the situation in Afghanistan really, how they can deal with that. For Iraq, it was easy to come to a contract with the United States to buy airplanes, to buy uh, military hardware and uh, employed by our um, uh, military force. Steve, did you want to comment on the SOFA? Yeah, I, I would just ask this question. It is a big issue within the U.S. political debate. Some people say Iraq would be much better off today if there were 20,000 American troops still there. Other people say, no, no, Iraqis were ready to step forward and take their own responsibility. And I think the real question is, do you think it would be easier for Iraq to manage things today if there had been a residual presence of 20,000 US troops, or would it not have made a difference? Well, I think really that depends on which group you talk to. For us, it would have been much better. It would have been better. But if you ask other political party, yeah, they say no. So it's a conflict sooner, of opinion. Sooner or later, Iraqi people, they have to be in charge of their future. They have to be in charge of, about their security. They have to take the action about anything. Uh, they need to live in a sovereign country. So as much as the time is short, this is better for Iraq. I am not talking about Afghanistan. I am not sure the situation, probably terrorism may be more. 
and uh, extremists maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe they are in charge right now, whether the situation will, will turn bad again. But in Iraq, believe me, uh, it's about the culture of Iraqi. It's about the mentality of Iraqi. They don't like uh, an invasion. They don't like a colonization. They don't like it. So uh, this is our mentality. I, I think I'm sure you, you know, I mean, I would have much preferred to have American forces in Mosul area, for instance, today, even today, on the western side, even in Diyala. But it, it really depends on the situation. But if yep. you ask somebody in Basra, he says, no, I don't want anybody to be here. Yep. Okay, but that's the, this is my opinion. Still, we are having a lot of difficulty in Mosul. Yes. We are having difficulty in Diyala. We are having difficulty in certain parts of Kirkuk. We are, western part of the area is difficult. It would have been much better to have forces in those areas. Interesting. You won't be surprised that there are differences of opinion <laughs> on the American side as well on this very I'm, I'm sure. That's well, what all <laughs> of us agree that we need a good relationship, of course. We need a trustful relationship between two sovereign countries, and all of us appreciate all uh, sacrifice done to help us to get rid of such a black and such an aggressive, such an, I don't know how to, bad dictator in Iraq. But we need to have a good relationship, balanced relationship, uh, based on uh, sovereign country. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Let me just uh, take this question here. I know we're running short on time. <laughs> Uh, my, my name is Yerevan Said. I'm from Kurdistan. I'm sorry, I'm a student at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Uh, just, uh, I'd like to briefly answer this gentleman uh, over there. I'm, I'm from Halab, so I'm a survivor of the Saddam Hussein's use of weapons of mass destruction. I lost 40 members of uh, my family. So it always disturbs me when people just ask about whether there was uh, weapons of mass destruction or not. Yes, there was weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and I believe one of the rightest and the best decisions that the U.S. has made in the history of humanity was to liberate Iraq from the most brutal dictatorship in, of the last uh, century. Uh, just I'd like to ask my questions by saying that, don't you think that a century of history, you know, killing each, each, each other differences within the Iraqi society is enough to give us a lesson that a unity within the Iraqi does not work, and don't you think it is time that Iraq to be, you know, separated? Because as we know, it was an artificial, uh, artificial state was, which was created by the British in the 1920s. And what we have seen in the terms of issues between the Kurds and, and, and Baghdad is just the same issues that we had in 1920s. So don't you think that we should have a you know, review of our policy so that, you know, people would not kill each other, that part of the world. Okay, who Thank would you. like to comment? Should we give up on the idea of Iraq? Uh, ask, ask Dr. Samir, Latif, Samir, I'm afraid <laughs> it comes to you, and then I'll, I'll yeah. let uh, well, Ambassador Samir. Is, is Iraq, I wonder, any more artificial a country than Iran or Turkey, uh, or, Turkey or actually any European country? Take Switzerland. Switzerland has Italian speakers, German speakers, French speakers. The definition, narrow definition of nationality has never, I mean, you cannot take any country and, and split it uh, precisely according to nationalistic 
If, if, if Iraq were to split, where would you put the border? We, still, we are still fighting about, or at least disputing, disputed it. The biggest Kurdish city in Iraq, where, where is my Kurdish friend? Hello, and, and I'm glad you survived Halabcha. I'm, I'm deeply horrified and sorry for the loss of your family. But that was not, you know, that's, that's a different issue. Uh, this does not mean that there is an enmity between, permanent enmity between Arabs and Kurds. We, we, we love you Kurds, uh, uh, and I lived in Kirkuk for many years. My point here is that the biggest city, biggest Kurdish city in Iraq is not Erbil and it's not Suleimani, it's Baghdad. Between Sunnis and Shi'is, there was uh, an, an idea of creating two uh, entities again. And if that's done, one third of all city dwellers are mixed marriages. The border line has to go through practically every bedroom in Baghdad. It, it doesn't work. And it is a formula for continued strife and continued uh, aggression. It is much more workable to find accommodation where everybody is comfortable. The Kurds are comfortable, they are running their affairs now, and even the Arabs are going to, to seek shelter with them because of the problems they have. And between the, 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 the uh, Sunnis and Shia, again, there is no historical enmity. It is the politics. Remove the political incentive, and we have the same tribes with one part of the tribe, sometimes one part of the family Sunni and one part of the family Shia, there's no, no problem. There are not inherent problems which dictate that you, we must be separated. But there are a lot of dangers that might come from a separatist uh, project. Thank you. With okay. our other guests. Okay. Believe me, split Iraq is not a choice for all of us. This is the only one thing that all of us agreed about it. In our constitution, it's clear. Unity of Iraq is a first priority for all of us. Uh, and it's impossible for many practical reasons rather than theoretical or something we, we, we dream about it. Because uh, Diyala, Mosul, Baghdad, Babel, Basra, all of it are mixed provinces. So if you want to split Iraq, Sunni area and Shia area and uh, Kurdish area, how could you deal with people in Baghdad? It's mixed. That means we will go through a civil war, and this is not good for all of us. How could you manage resources? Resources mainly in, in south of Iraq. It's mainly in Basra. The whole country right now uh, lives on in the oil of Basra and Omara and Nasiriyah. So it's about resources, about even the culture, the community, all Iraqis. Uh, regardless that their religious belief or sectarian belief, they like their country and they want to work to keep it as a unified country rather than to split it into uh, three areas depending on uh, sectarian or ethnic uh, basis. Uh, of course, you hear between time and time a voices from Kurdistan talking about such issue. Believe me, it's uh, a way to threatening the government rather than it's a real uh, option for them to, it's not easy, it's part of the whole area balance or equilibrium. There is Turkey, there is Iran, there is Syria, it's everywhere, so it's not easy. Practically, it's impossible. And if you are talking about blood, if we divide Iraq, 
more blood, we will lose, not less blood. Uh, okay, very briefly. Really, let us uh, take these issues realistically, not emotionally. Emotional is very diff dangerous in politics. I think after liberation of Iraq, the Kurdish political forces and Kurdish leaders were the first to go to Baghdad and ask for formation of Iraqi government's unity. Okay? And until today, no Kurdish political party, no Kurdish leadership, no Kurdish media have asked for separation of Iraq. You do occasionally hear individual voices, but still, both major political, Kurdish political parties, KDP, PUK, plus other political parties, some Islamists, some liberals, some Goran, they are all committed to the unity of a democratic federal Iraq. And I think this is a right policy at present. I'm not talking about 50 years from now on, because nobody should deny the rights of any nation's self-determination. But at present, the reality of the Kurdish leadership, Kurdish political parties, and Kurdish masses at large is for the unity of Iraq, and we should defend the unity of a democratic federal Iraq according to our constitution. Since we have consensus among our Iraqi participants, I think this is a good note on which to end. And we're actually, we're at the witching hour, we are out of time. Um, I think we've gotten a sense of the, the richness of the conversation um, and the number of things that we haven't touched on. I hope there'll be other opportunities. But I want to thank everyone up here on stage with me for helping us have a conversation that I think went several layers deeper than the conversations that we normally see in our media um, and in our press. So please join me in thanking our four participants tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night.